0: This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD UltraVids and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Lyca's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Well, welcome to Into the Foliage. This is a weird one because usually Jan would be with me, but however, Jan is not well. And I must point out we're recording this on a Saturday morning, so there's a very high chance that Jan is just hanging out of her ass right now. But I hope you're feeling better, Jan. So I am hosting Into the Foliage on my own for the first time, but I would hope by now from hosting Into the Wild for over a year and a half that I can do this on my own. So welcome to Into the Foliage. There's not going to be a preamble chat like usual. I'm just going to go straight into the show and welcome our guest today, which is Gus. Hi, Gus. Welcome to uh, Into the Foliage. How are you doing? I'm very good, Ryan. How are you? I'm I'm very good, thank you. Blurry-eyed in mm-hmm. the morning. It's weird recording these first thing on a Saturday morning.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit the same, because I mean, I, d- I drove back from work south of Glasgow yesterday, which is about a four-hour drive, and I oh, was wow. soaked as well in the rain, so... Yeah, got back about ten, but you know. <laughs> All good now. Need to get paid somehow. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um sorry, I just realized I didn't say your surname. So I'm chatting with Gus Rutledge. Is that how I pronounce your surname? Uh Routledge. Go for Routledge. Routledge. There we go. I know I yeah. get it wrong. I, I don't mind do. too much. <laughs> um well welcome to Into the Foliage, Gus. Lovely to have you here. Shall we start where we always start off and start by you telling us who you are and what is it you do? Uh, I'll go
1: for the easy one. So a lot of people know me by my uh, Instagram and Twitter handle Pinkfooted Gus, uh, which yeah. is obviously a play on the Goose. Um,
0: yeah.
1: I figured, I figured, then I can keep the brand going. If I need to, I can go for Canada Gus and Grey Lag Gus. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> <laughs> all these kind of things. Um, so yeah, a lot of people know me through my social media, which I do a lot of just tweeting and Instagramming of all the stuff I see, which yeah. you can include all sorts of things, um, which mostly relates to my work. So I'm a consultant ecologist, recently became self-employed, which is nice, well done. quite a big step. But, you know, it suits me a lot better. I've got more free time to do various things and almost get to pick and choose my work, which is always nice. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm better off in every way that way. Uh, So the work that I actually do is mostly centred on habitats. Hmm. So, well, the work I was just doing south of Glasgow was peatland restoration work. So we were doing the initial scoping survey to see... How much of this peatland could be restored and then also doing a lot of habitat surveys do a bit of site condition monitoring of like designated sites so sites of special scientific interest we'll go there and assess all the features that it's designated for and see if it's in good condition also a lot of my work this year has been revolving around herbivore impact assessment so obviously in scotland we've got quite a lot of deer i think everybody's quite aware of that Um, so i I go out there and assess the habitat to see what impact the deer are having wow Um, that's interesting i mean yeah i did one site this year which had almost a thousand herbivore impact assessment points across seven different highland estates so jesus yeah it was quite a big quite a big job of a lot of steep grounds so i'm feeling quite fit at the end of the season (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of walking around and checking. checking yeah, around and stuff. a lot of walking around. So a lot of your work is habitat-based. You're really like strong on that kind of like checking the habitat and the environment, and it's yeah. suitability for whatever cause. Yeah. So the
1: the first because I studied countryside management just outside aberdeen at scotland's rural college which they've changed the name now to wildlife conservation management which much better reflects what it is yeah but i mean it was such a broad course i mean i went in thinking i'll enjoy all the ecology stuff and all the other stuff i'll just kind of get through but i ended up really enjoying the visitor management and heritage Mm. studies and obviously things like gis geographical information systems Mm. uh, just all the people stuff i was like wow i'm actually really enjoying this yeah when i thought i was Some sort of hermit who just lived in the woods and stuff, but yeah. So it it was really good just to get a a good sort of broad understanding of all the sort of factors that come into effect ecology, which is obviously my main focus. But yeah, having all those things come in, uh, it was useful. And when I was trying to work out kind of what I wanted to do after my first year, I took a year out and did a year long apprenticeship with. What was then s is now Nature Scott, based at Loch Leven National Nature Reserve, which was one of the best years of my life, just sort of helping manage a national nature reserve with yeah, thousands amazing. of wintering wildfowl and really nice habitat all around the loch. So that was really good. But whilst I was there, somebody contacted me, through twitter actually to say oh you're quite good at your birds would you like to come and help me survey this highland estate and i was like yes (laughs) of course i do (laughs) (laughs) yes thank
0: you can i pay you (laughs) quite happily
1: exactly it was in fact it was really weird getting paid I, I didn't get paid a lot because obviously I was, it was like my first ever job. And, yeah. But I was getting paid almost as much per day then as I was getting per week doing the internship with SNH. So, wow! So I was like, what? <laughs> this is really weird. So, yeah, I started out on ecological surveys doing birds. But whilst I was doing that, I built up my botany skills quite a lot, mm. uh, all just through sort of personal study and things. Shout out to Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, VSBI, because they mm. run a New Year plant hunt each year. Oh, cool. And that was how I got into botany. I bought a field guide and went out with a group just in my local area in Edinburgh and started learning plants. And that was it. So I'm pretty much completely self taught. So now my focus in terms of surveys has moved more towards the habitats rather than the birds. But I'm still, obviously, I can do the birds, but I don't enjoy it as much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we like to hear that on Into the Wild. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I've
1: noticed that in some of these podcasts.
0: (laughs) Now, that's cool, though. I think what you just said there is like learning your local patch. That's how you got into it. And mm. I think that's one thing we must have said so many times on both shows, Into the World and Into the Foliage, is that it's just starting local, isn't it? And learning what's around Absolutely. you. Not only to appreciate it, but it makes it dead easy to learn. And it's kind of that slow progress into whether you're learning trees, plants, grasses, or moss, whatever you're learning, fungi. It's just starting around you is, is the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, what would you say wildlife and nature means to you? Oh, tricky one i'd say it means a lot mm. <laughs> it's certainly
1: where i'd start but <laughs> sorry it mean, took a like, sip of I... my
0: drink then <laughs> yeah it means a lot next question
1: yeah 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 that'll do this is gonna be a very short podcast <laughs> um no i'd say it's, it's up there with like friends and family and work it's mm. like it is life as far as i'm concerned yeah it's such a big part of my life I mean, it pretty much links into the other things I mentioned, friends, family and work. I mean, obviously, I've made a career out of nature and wildlife, uh, so I have quite a lot to thank it for. I've made loads of friends through nature and wildlife. It just keeps going. It's it's just endless sort of opportunities through nature and
0: wildlife. It's a weird one, isn't it? When you said you put it with friends and family, I agree. Because I was also, like, I have this feeling sometimes if people treat it sh- I feel like it's someone treating a friend like. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's that same kind of empathy going, don't yep. do that. That's me. Yeah, definitely. Like, I really have that kind of emotional empathy, which I don't know, maybe that's too much projection, but it. it I guess <laughs> it's also in the bad state of the world. So you can't help that. Well, exactly. So. Yeah. So, on Into the Foliage today, we're talking about two things kind of. We're talking about rare plants in the UK, and we're talking about kind of missing habitats, which I kind of guess leads into why these plants would be so rare yeah and this is something you really like to do so why do you like looking for rare plants i guess it's sort
1: of i don't know if i want to group myself with twitchers but it's, it's almost the same i can imagine it's they probably get the same buzz out of seeing a rare bird as i do out of rare plants but for me it's not just about seeing that single plant yeah As I said, I used to be just birds and then I've moved into plants and all sorts of things. It's kind of spiraled out of control. I do mosses and lichens and fungi now as well. So, yeah, so I've had friends say, oh, you're not a birder anymore. You don't go out looking for birds. I'm like, well, sure, I've got my target is yellow marsh saxifrage or something. But whilst I'm going out there, I'm seeing hen harriers. I'm seeing a red grouse chick by the road and helping it off to see its mum. I'm seeing all the other plants. I'm understanding the habitat. I'm looking at the landscape and how it's managed yes i get that. the the thing i've targeted is that one individual plant but i'd say that's almost just the cherry on the top because i mean most of the places that these plants grow you're gonna see some other interesting stuff and it's yeah especially up in scotland you know you've got some pretty stunning landscapes to be walking absolutely about so, yeah. I, yeah i must say i do love <laughs> looking at the rare plants i mean it's it's it's, it's It's like that feeling, like I I went up way up north earlier in the year, I think it was in Mm. June, to see Scottish primrose, which I've seen a few times before, but I I wasn't happy with my pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Have to to go back. Um, (laughs) And we were walking about this site where I know there's about 3,000 plants, Mm. but in all the coastal turf you could see all the little rosettes, but not one of them was flowering until we came over this little, we came over this little bit and there was one single perfect Scottish primrose and I've got a really nice picture of it with some of the hills of the north north coast in the background and really nice sea and everything. So amazing. Uh, yeah, it's just that sort of really nice feeling. And then after that, we went and just lay in the grass and enjoyed the sun. It's like,
0: oh, that sounds what, odd. What
1: What, what more <laughs> could you want? You know, yeah. rare plants and sunshine.
0: <laughs> what What consists? Because this is when you said there's about three thousand. How did, And this might change. I don't know if this change is among a group of plants and stuff. But what makes it rare? Is there a certain level of so
1: uh, it's tricky so it does depend so in scottish primrose's case it's rare because the only place it grows in the world is the north coast of scotland and orkney uh, okay, so, <laughs> that's pretty yeah, specific. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, and then there's other plants in Scotland like uh, yellow oxytropis, which I think mm. only has three sites in the whole of Scotland. Wow. So there's things like that, and I don't know, like Diapensia that's got one site, Quinigia icelandica, that's got two sites. The reason I'm not using the English name for those is because they don't have them. Oh, no, Quinigia is Iceland purslane. Um, oh, so cool. I, I will I will uh, apologise in advance. I've been working with botanists, and they keep referring to things in the scientific name, so I'm still in that kind of mindset. That's at the I mean,
0: that's fine. That's fine. I don't <laughs> speak right, any good. scientific names or Latin, but uh-huh. it is impressive when people do. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I'll I'll try and refrain because, yeah, like if I, if you go on my social media, I give the English and scientific name because yes, it's yeah, more yeah. accessible for people, and you know. You want everybody to be able to enjoy it. so And scientific names can be a bit daunting, so I'm trying to refrain. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, it does it does depend. Certain plants, but like the Iceland person that I mentioned, there's only two sites in Scotland. You go to Iceland, it's like a roadside weed. It grows everywhere. Rare, that's interesting. Yeah, so, and there's, I don't know, like Blue Heath, that has two localities in Scotland with, I think, seven sites spread across those two localities. And, you know, you go to Norway and it's everywhere. So, yeah, you know, yeah. it it's all relative, really.
0: What I'm hearing here is in the UK, they're not doing very well, but in the rest of Europe, everything's grand.
1: <laughs> yeah. And p- part of that, so for like Iceland, persland and Blue Heath, part of that is that we are at the southern edge of their range. Yeah. And combined with the likes of climate change, it is going to push them further north. And so, yeah, they are perhaps sort of not doing so well on that front but the you know as you go back in time towards like the last ice age these things would have been far more frequent so they've just been sort of pushed to the little little sort of almost like ice age refuges that still mimic what it would have been like in the ice age way back then which is another thing i really enjoy because going out to see um iceland person on the trotternish Mm. ridge and sky as i say plants it uh, to some pretty that, amazing yeah. places it's growing in uh, like basalt fell field which is just little sort of grit and the only reason it's thriving there is that nothing else can because of the frost heave oh, in the wow. uh, in the basalt which isn't mimicked anywhere yeah. else in scotland so it's just like so, kind of taken yeah, over we're not taken over
0: but it's kind of like gone well nothing else is there this is perfect for me exactly that's amazing yeah, exactly. isn't it so th- yeah. th- that's really cool like knowing about i guess the reason why the plants are kind of rare but also like that specific habitat that's what i like about especially i guess plants because they don't Mm -hmm. really move around as such whereas animals can move to find it but like you said the pockets are there so does the uk have a lot of rare plants so what's the variety
1: well i suppose you could say what sorts there are so i ha- I don't know how i'd quantify how many there are but i mean there's enough to keep me going put it that way there's still plenty <laughs> there's still plenty things i've not seen and i've yeah. seen quite a lot of nice stuff i mean like i send my records into the bsbi and the, g- the guy who sort of looks through my records is always like oh, I oh that. that'd be nice to see He's like, oh that's another one i'd like to see i'm like yep <laughs> you just gotta get out there so yeah there's there's definitely plenty yeah. to be getting on with in terms of what type, so I've, I've sort of briefly touched on one of them, which is like Arctic alpine. Well, yeah, Arctic mm. alpine. So things like blue heath and Iceland persian. The best site for Al- Arctic alpines in Scotland actually is Ben Lawers oh. National Nature Reserve, and the reason for that is that the underlying geology is, I think, it's mica schists. So as opposed to being acidic, as most of the mm. Scottish islands are it's uh, calcareous or basic so it's yeah. like alkaline uh, which we don't really get very much of but also with that comes more difficult growing conditions so you get fewer generalists basically yeah yeah like if you walk over the Cairngorms it's all it's almost all acidic granite so you're getting lots of heather and you know all that kind of stuff which kind of dominates you do find other little bits and pieces mm. in amongst it, but where you where you have the sort of calcareous outcrops, that's where you get the real plant diversity. So Ben Lores has oh, quite a lot of plants that grow almost nowhere else in Scotland.
0: Wow, and that's purely because of the alkaline-based ground.
1: Yeah, and also the, the height of Ben Lores, I think, is like 1,000... 000... I don't know it's 1,200 metres or something so there's not many hills in Scotland that are that high that have that kind of geology basically That's amazing Yeah and then there's other things that are earlier this year I came across well I didn't come across it took me three hours to find it (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just stumbled
0: uh, across it while searching for three (laughs) hours solid
1: Yeah uh that's the way things are Yeah especially with these orchids so this was uh, Irish ladies tresses Oh uh, yeah which is a really really nice orchid like really creepy creamy coloured sort of spiral. Oh, they're so nice. Unfortunately, I got to it just before it started flowering and then I couldn't get back in the coming weeks to see. But nice to know it's still there because I think it was last recorded in 2006 at that site. It used to do much better there because they grazed it with horses and they had the grazing regime right. Mm. Whereas now I think it's grazed by sheep pretty much all year round, so it's not quite right for it. But that, sorry, coming back to what I was saying, that species has Basically, if you ignore, well, it has a very limited distribution in the UK and Ireland, but if you go across the United States, it's pretty widespread. And there's wow. a few plants like that, in, uh, especially on the west coast of Scotland. In fact, we'll just take one island as an example. Collinsy has, it has time broomrape, which mm-hmm. is basically a Mediterranean species. It has Irish lady tresses, which is basically an American species. It has purple saxifrage, I think, which is practically an arctic species basically if you look at the plants on Collinsy, yeah. they come from all corners of the globe it's amazing just how many plants that sort have of come together
0: but they are native um, to that area still
1: yeah 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 they yeah. Just, have, so just so it's just weird <laughs> yeah it's just funny the the sort of distribution that plants take yeah uh, how they how they distribute themselves across the globe
0: yeah that's really weird i don't know if, i don't know if weird's the right word but i'm just like what, why there and everywhere else <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you some of the weirdest distributions. So in Scotland, we have uh, a community called the Northern Hepatic Mat, Mm. uh, which is basically, it's a bunch of liverworts, which grow in a very specific cold, wet, um, (laughs) steep, shaded heath kind of community. So it'll be found on sort of north and northeast facing slopes, mostly in the Northwest Highlands. And these liverworts have some wacky distributions. There's ones like uh, Plagiochyla carringtoniae, which I think is Carrington's featherwort. Mm. Uh, it, it's found in Scotland, Ireland, the pharaohs, and Nepal. <laughs> and and Croydon. Yeah, exactly. It's really <laughs> weird stuff like that. I'd have to I'd have to think about all of them. But, I mean, there's other That's ones mad. like Scapania ornithopodioides, which I think is birds something earwort yeah which is found in like northwest canada the uk uh, again nepal the pharaohs i think and svalbard or something like that and maybe norway but again i guess these habitats are quite similar exactly yeah it's it's basically in nepal it's it's uh, mimicked the same thing it's just really oceanic sort of humid north-facing cold Environment. How did they get there? Well, that's the thing. They must have been way more widespread at some point, and then yeah. the climate's changed probably naturally over time, and they've just subsumed into these little pockets all over the globe. The weirdest one, which I've seen is, uh, Adelanthus Lindenbergianus.
0: I mean, has... can we just get an award for the best Latin name? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's got a good one. Um, you can see why I'd forgotten it, why yeah. <laughs> it takes me a second to remember <laughs> that it. That
0: would be on the tip of my tongue at every dinner party. <laughs> uh
1: huh. Yeah. So it grows on one hill on Isla and then one hill on Jura. And then I think it's got five sites in Ireland. Otherwise, all of its sites are in the southern hemisphere wow so it's another really weird one so i think they're doing genetic tests to see whether our population has diverged genetically from the southern hemisphere ones yeah because i mean that's basically how species (laughs) sort of become
0: separate so yeah exactly that's that's mad i think also the mad thing about that is how people know like that one species well there's two species you said that also are in nepal yeah that's mad that people know it's there and also i, I just don't know but if it is such small pockets i think i think it's mad that we as a species know it's there and know it's over yeah. here as well that just shows how mad science is really <laughs> yeah how <laughs> mad
1: people are definitely. yeah well yeah exactly and that's that's another thing i love about uh, looking for rare plants is that i'm almost following in the footsteps of kind of some of these people yeah like there's uh, there's one guy in particular I've got a book next to me, well one of his books, uh, Derek Ratcliffe, mm. who used to be quite high up in the NCC, which has become then split up and now it's basically what Nature Scott is. Yeah, and he was like a real pioneer going out and looking for plants. But even before him, there's a really good book called mountain flowers i think by max raven and it basically chronicles the sort of advances in looking for these mountain flowers and rare plants and things and some of the botanists back then were just bonkers (laughs) i mean i mean they did things which you know now i'm sort of going oh why did you do that like collecting certain species which are now really restricted more restricted than they would have been like um, yeah Oblong, oblong woodsia, if you go to Norway, it grows to quite a decent size. But if you come here, it's it's really quite small. It's only about 10 centimetres, if yeah. that tall. So, And I think that's possibly due to genetic inbreedings. Basically, the population is so small now that they're not really growing to their full potential. But that said, these botanists did some mental things. And if you think about, like, now I can drive up a road into Glen Clover or whatever and then walk for about an hour do my botanizing walk back out and uh i'd have my lunch or whatever walk back out and drive my car back home mm. these guys had to go out with a horse like <laughs> two hunks of two hunks of bread and a bit of cheese for a week and there was no road so you know i really i admire them and i yeah that's part of the reason i do quite enjoy doing it because um i mean i'll occasionally i'll challenge myself just a little bit by going out with just my camera
0: and two lumps of bread and some cheese <laughs>
1: Well, I would do that if I was going out for a whole week. Then yeah. I'd have to go the full Monty. I feel. Um,
0: I think you should try so, it. I think you should try the 1600s uh, one botany ex- exploration, <laughs> and then say, "Do you still like looking for rare plants?"
1: Oh well, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. These guys were just so committed. Yeah, um, I think it's that sort of Victorian collectors mindset is what they were going for. Whereas I'm. I'm taking the good bits from that and leaving out the bad bits. I'm not collecting yeah. them. It's called evolution. Yeah,
0: like, exactly, exactly. Traditions yeah, change. Wise. Yeah, you take the best bits, scrap the rest of it. Yeah, definitely. What are some of your favourite rare plants and what's been some of your kind of successes, I guess, in the last year or so? Hmm. Um, favorite?
1: Well, I was just discussing this with my girlfriend yesterday, actually. One of my favourite plants. I say it's my favourite because I actually find that I have most affinities with it and i do seem to just stumble upon it in Mm. in places it's not been recorded before so this is coral root orchid Oh, i realized yesterday that i don't say it very well so this is coral root orchid coral coral root root. (laughs) is one word
0: coral root
1: or uh, is one word coral root coral root is one word which is why i can't i don't I sort of mumble it, curro root. So, (laughs) anyway.
0: You say Um, it beautifully in your Scottish accent. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it it works
1: really well. Uh, (laughs) But um, yeah, it it grows in like really damp woods, quite dark with willow. And it's parasitic on the roots of willows, but then it's also saprophytic. So, it gets its energy from decaying plant matter, but it also gets its energy from fungi. So, it's got three sources of income, basically. And Barely any of it comes from uh, like having chlorophyll, so it can yeah. be really pale. So it's like a sort of mental plant that's like, oh, I'll just take everybody else's energy yeah. and not really bother, <laughs> uh, and I'll just keep myself to myself down on the forest floor where nobody sees me. It's a bit
0: of a squatter orchid. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's yeah, quite an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, this year I found three new sites for it and one of them was the most northerly record since 19 1960s i think oh wow and i suspect that 1960s record that i suspect i'll have to go and work out where it is because the grid square since it was recorded in the 1960s i haven't recorded it very accurately so it's i've got a grid square that's 10 by 10 square kilometers 10, 10 square kilometres, so I, I've got quite a lot of ground to try and work out yeah, what yeah. it is. But, but that's part of the, the joy of it, as I said. But yeah, finding things like coral root orchid is always sort of rewarding and Going out and I mean like my first because I used to tweet all my well, not all my plant finds, but quite a lot of them. Again, shout out to BSBI and Wildflower Hour, yeah. Which is on Twitter from eight till nine every Sunday. Yeah. It's um, which is another another way that I really boosted my botany because I was posting my things, but then seeing everybody else's and yeah. It might just be the way my brain works, but being exposed to it, just things start going in. Yeah. And it's just a really nice community to be part of. So yeah, I used to tweet quite a lot of my plant finds and actually uh, the guy who I now send all my plant records to, he first got in contact because I posted a picture of meadow Saxifrage from Findlay or Castle which is a pretty stunning spot on the, the maurice coast mm. and he contacted me saying oh that's not been recorded there in a decade do you record your plants and i was like no and he was like Well, wow, here's a spreadsheet here you go and so amazing yeah that's how i got into plant recording it was as e- easy as that as easy as basically having a mentor to say well this is how you do it and he's yeah. he's all. in fact i emailed him this morning because i in fact i've got it right here i've got a hybrid willow a suspected hybrid <laughs> eared eared cross creeping willow and he's told me how to identify. Identify whether it is eared cross creeping willow which is salix cross ambigua i think is its scientific name so uh, yeah having those mentors there it's another thing that i would would absolutely say there are people out there who are really happy to help people advance their botanical skills there's not many botanists out there i mean you compare it to I mean everybody's a bird watcher aren't they in the UK so not every Not everyone it seems it seems you're becoming one well people <laughs> despite, are bloody trying the best of
0: some people yeah people uh-huh. are trying but no I think you're right yeah. I think people are happy to because it's almost like a passing on skill isn't it really because if you if you yeah. I I'm going to be I guess I'm going to be a little bit careful how I say this if you let it become <laughs> your ego and about you then you've Mm -hmm. lost the connection of what you're actually trying to achieve with whether it's science communication or kind of natural history and ecology and all stuff like that. Because the point is, is to learn, to preserve, to save, and if you're passing that on, as you said, like mentors are for yourself and for other people mm-hmm. that are listening now, or or even if you're just following people on Instagram, do you know what I mean? You're learning from them. Yeah. I think that's a whole, well, certainly a big chunk of the point of what we all do. This is why this podcast exists and stuff like this. So yeah, I think that's really a really yeah. cool thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So why, this is this is a bit of a big question i guess you covered it a bit with um climate change and slash you know natural mm. climate changes as well throughout the thousands of years but mm-hmm. why are these plants rare uh i'll try and use a case study i'll try and
1: think of one that. well i was going to use blue heath but mm. i was like i'll try and use something i've not used already I think <laughs> Blue Heath's quite quite a good example so as i said it would have probably been far more widespread when we were a colder place mm. and in fact there's there's a few old records from, like, it just says side, and they've collected it, so you can see a herbarium specimen, but they have no idea where it came from because they didn't give any more uh, indication as to where it came from. So it it was more widespread in even recent times. But, yeah, it will have contracted its range due to natural climate change and, you know, the conditions being better for other plants. Yeah, And then subsequent to that, Blue Heath does not like being set on fire,
0: much like myself. <laughs> So, <laughs> right, you've lost me. You've lost me. This has got too complex. <laughs> this is too I mean, academic, guys. I
1: mean, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I'll simplify this. It doesn't like being burnt. I mean, I think, like many things, admittedly, there are plants that love being burnt. I mean, gorse, you know, people try controlling gorse by fire, but it absolutely loves it because you've basically given it perfect ground conditions for it to then re sprout and you've eliminated any competition.
0: I think that's a big thing with burning, isn't it? Yeah. I actually think you've just touched on a massive point that I've not heard much or people have Mm -hmm. said is it's not that the plant you're burning enjoys it, it's actually that you're taking away everything else that doesn't enjoy it, thus creating a bit of a monoculture.
1: Yeah, exactly, because that's the thing with blue heath. It doesn't like being burnt, so potentially it was more widespread even into recent times on our hills, but so much of our hills, not even like in the past 100 years or 200 years when grouchsmoor stuff has been going mm. on. Well before that, when people were clearing forests and, and burning things to improve grazing for sheep, you know, over the past several hundred years. Oh, I don't know how long people have been burning the hills for <laughs> agriculture Im- uh, improvement, but it will have basically eradicated it from some areas. I will not say certainly, but it it's likely, certainly, that it has... Very likely. Yeah, so a lot of it is... Yeah, certain plants are just restricted naturally, but a lot of them are unnaturally restricted by our own sort of land management and things. Certainly grazing comes into it a lot. I mean, part of the reason that I'm always to be found on steep cliffs and crags and scree slopes, you know, places (laughs) where where you're potentially in mortal peril. (laughs) Another reason I absolutely love it is because it really makes you feel alive, like clinging to the side of this cliff going, wow, this is cool. There's probably been nobody up here since the Victorian era. Amazing. Um, when, I, when actually there was probably a, another equally mad botanist up there the <laughs> month before. Um, but yeah, part of the reason I end up on those cliffs is that so many of the species that are currently rare are rare because they've been restricted to these inaccessible crags where yeah. deer and sheep can't get to them. And it's also be- worth bearing in mind, we had far more sheep on the hill In the past. Like, if you look at the records of some of the the estates, they just had so many sheep on the hills. And in fact, I've been made aware of, I haven't found the original source of it, but I've been aware of uh, records of people actually lowering sheep on ropes, or maybe it was goats on ropes onto inaccessible ledges so that they could graze them. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's like the efforts they went to to make my job really difficult
0: like how much can you do wrong in one task like i know i mean sailing ungulates sheep. like i
1: just <laughs> yeah. i mean I, it's quite a spectacle to witness but i mean i mean i want yeah, yeah, like to see
0: it yeah i'm not saying i don't like to see it
1: but yeah yeah i mean that people have done all sorts of mental stuff in the past that kind of we kind of forget about like um I can't remember the name of him, but some estate owner up on D-side, or maybe it was his forestry manager, uh, decided that he wanted more larch on the hills. So he put larch seeds into cannons and fired (laughs) them at inaccessible ledges that they couldn't plant themselves. And Mm -hmm. basically shot larches onto cliffs, which is... I don't mind large, really. It fits in quite nicely, but I mean, it's just the sort of. Do you know what I mean?
0: And I don't want to be gender specific, but of course, it was a man. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Only a man would go. Well, let's just shoot the seeds into the. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I know. I mean, yeah, we've we've got a lot to answer for. That's for sure. Yeah. Right.
0: So So it's no wonder these plants are rare. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. When
1: we're doing th- mental stuff like that. Um, so a lot of it is to do with management. There's a lot of um, yeah, plants that are missing from places that they shouldn't be missing from, but they're missing from because of management. I, I will just say that in... In the past people perhaps just weren't aware of what they were doing. Yeah. absolutely. You know, they didn't yeah. understand the intricacies of how things and now we're coming to realise that, oh, well, that was actually quite bad, but you know, you've just got to deal with it
0: in the yeah. best way you can. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that is a very good point to make. You know, if we we're talking about two, three hundred years ago, then yeah, people didn't know that mm-hmm. they just needed needed the thing to be there or not to be there and it's it's yeah. very hard and you know, sometimes you need to lower a sheep or a goat down a cliff. It just needs to happen. Sometimes it needs to happen. <laughs> yep. yep. But you know, barely definitely. a day goes by where I'm like, you know, let's grab a sheep. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. Maybe
1: they should have combined the larches and sheep idea and fired the sheep at the cliff.
0: I uh, it sounds more of a spectacle. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. don't I'll get a animal right activist emailing in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um So actually, that kind of leads us on about to our next kind of subtopic of this episode is about missing habitats. Because Mm -hmm. I guess with these things that have been happening, whether it's overgrazing or the wrong type of grazing or burning or just, you know, natural changes in the habitat, then habitats Mm -hmm. or ecosystems are starting to miss. So what are the kind of main habitats or type of environments in the UK that are currently missing or once were that are no longer?
1: Yeah, so there are certain habitats that we've completely eradicated, which I'll I will definitely touch on. Uh, but there's a lot of habitats that are really restricted. Um, mm. So in uh, I'm going to forget the the exact stat, but in, in basically in Scotland we have very little native woodland. I mean, I think really? it's about it's it's something like seven percent of the land area is now native woodland oh jesus when if you look at biomes across the globe we should be a forest biome it should be a forested ecosystem that's not to say despite how some people might sort of interpret it it's not to say it's all continuous closed canopy forest yes you know there's the whole thing about a red squirrel we used to be able to get from land's end up to um johnny grope or whatever it is Mm. or across scotland I mean, that might have been possible, but I don't think it would have been able to do it without touching the ground because you certainly would have. You have natural glades in in woodlands. You have bracken glades. You've got places where it's too boggy for the trees to grow. You've got flushes where it's too wet for the trees to grow. You've got natural landslip events. You've got storms. You've got lightning. You've got fire. Yeah, so just to clear that up, (laughs) <laughs> you know, because people go, Oh, well, where's the, I don't know, where are the butterflies going to live if it's all forested? I'm, I'm not advocating for full forest clover. Of
0: course, um, of course. The butterflies
1: will be quite happy in all the, all the bracken glades where their food plant, the, you know, dog violet grows for yeah. the, the fertiliseries and whatnot. So, but <laughs> back to the main point, we have lost an awful lot of our forest. Yeah, 7% um, is not enough. <laughs> certainly not. And I mean, you compare that to, I think the European average is about 37% or so. I'd have to go and check these. Don't quote me on any (laughs) of these
0: figures. Don't worry, it's not like you're saying it on a podcast or anything.
1: Uh, Yeah, Uh nobody will hear this. (laughs) (laughs) I highly doubt (laughs) it. um so yeah we've lost a lot of our forested ecosystems so well one of the things i i did an awful lot of when i was studying in aberdeen was visit ancient caledonian pinewood remnants Mm. we have lots of them scattered across scotland i mean from the very biggest like abernethy which is absolutely worth a visit it's incredible i mean like right next to the visitor center at loch Garten, you've got some of the oldest old growth in the forest like trees that are three four hundred years old like right next to the road so you don't even need to go far to see really ridiculously old pines and you know an in- basically an intact forest ecosystem because they've got the deer numbers down where you're getting a diversity of trees regenerating and everything so yeah from the very biggest to like the smallest where you've got pff, like a stand of about 12 trees or something like that in mm-hmm. fact i've got a friend uh, who works for trees for life who has been visiting a lot of places just like me and he's he's found a single lonely pine that's never been recorded before. Wow. In fact, we went and visited one on the coast just north of Wallapool which is actually a, a, like a sea cliff pine, which looks to be like it may be an actual remnant of the original forest. Jesus. Um,
0: and it's just there on its own. Yeah,
1: it's there on Well, fortunately, now there's actually regeneration of younger trees around it. So, oh, wow. Okay. You know, it's a happy, a happy story there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's nice that's, to hear. It's within, yeah, it's within like a massive, uh, sort of landscape skill management thingy, uh, and Sint, living landscapes. Yeah, which, again, another excellent place to go and visit. Yeah. I'd say the main thing we've lost is our wooded ecosystems. And so I quite often advocate for greater deer control and a reduction in deer numbers and all mm-hmm. sorts of other things. People sometimes may misconstrue this for me hating deer. I love deer. Deer are amazing. I mean, uh, I was up looking, (laughs) again, looking for rare plants, actually, up in the northwest last week, and Mm. I heard my first roaring stags of the year. Amazing. And you just stand there as the fog's coming in, and you're hearing them echoing in the quarry below you, and you're like, this is just amazing. Yeah. You can see why they're so iconic. Um, Absolutely. What a Scottish
0: moment that must have been. (laughs) Oh, it was so good.
1: I mean, unfortunately, I didn't find the aspen that I was looking for. I think it was supposed to be at about 700 meters in, in Scree. So no luck there. I might have to go back, but it was, it was, yeah. So yeah, I love deer, but we've got a bit too many. So I quite often chat about woodlands and how much woodland we've lost. But I mean, Mm. I've written a, I think I've written a blog article about this before. People often, the sort of knee jerk reaction is to go, Oh, but we need open landscapes too. And I'm Mm. looking at our land and you're going, okay, yeah, we need open landscapes too, but how much woodland have we got? Like hardly any. And it's in dreadful condition because it's all overgrazed and the understory's not good. And I think based on all my experience of traveling all over Scotland and seeing all sorts of habitats, working in them, playing in them, you know, all these sorts of things, I think a lot of our open habitats would actually be better with lower grazing levels. Mm. Like our blanket bogs, a lot of those are eroding actively eroding obviously a massive leak of carbon yeah but also i mean that's like an internationally important habitat because we've got so much blanket bog in scotland compared to basically the whole globe we've got heaps but a lot of that is eroded over time due to various sorts of management but now it's continuing to erode because deer are trampling all over it you remove those deer those peat the bare peat is going to revegetate the site i was on down in the just south of glasgow actually Pleasantly surprised to find that they've, they've got low enough sheep numbers there. Deer aren't an issue there, but they've got low enough sheep numbers there that the, the peat hags are revegetating. And you can see that, wow. you can see species like sphagnum, wow, they've changed its name. It used to be sphagnum magellanicum. It's now sphagnum medium, um, which is an indicator of quite a, a good quality bog. And that is Amazing. recolonizing bare areas of peat. So, nature can recover you just need to give it a break yeah and you know like our wildflower meadows i think some of them could probably benefit from just more sensitive grazing not necessarily less but sort of more uh, applicable so so those people who I, I can't think of anybody in particular i don't think there is anybody in particular i'm not targeting anybody <laughs> but i have had it said to me quite often oh but we need open habitats yeah i agree but go and focus on making the good open habitats better rather than making it so that our woodlands aren't going to recover and you know grow around all these nice areas
0: and surely it's about balance is it not oh yeah
1: that's the the key word we're so our ecosystems are so ridiculously out of balance Mm. um I mean, you take the average Scottish hillside and you go up there and you're like, well, there's not much here. I mean, there's meadow pipits and a few red grouse. Even if it's not burned, there'll be grouse. Maybe a golden plover up on the hill or whatever. But quite a lot of that heath should be far more diverse. You'd still have the heather. You'd still have all the feather mosses beneath it. You'd still have the sphagnum. You'd still have the bleabry. In fact, you'd probably have more bleabry because bleabry is basically more palatable than heather. Yeah. And also worth bearing in mind, I think it's something like Blabry supports 20 times the number of lepidopteran species than Heather does. Wow. So, you know, it's not only more palatable for deer, it's more palatable for insects. And obviously more insects means more birds and more birds means more life. And, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, those hillsides would still have all those species, but you'd also have trees. You'd also have all the species that are reliant on trees. You'd also have... Yeah, it's just so out of balance because we've been, uh, I mean, I don't want to say we've abused the land. We've Mm. used the land out with its limits for so long. This is, you know, it stretches back centuries. And it is still quite pretty remarkable just how quickly nature bounces back. One site I've been to, Board of Forest Trust, Uh, their flagship site is Carafran Wildwood, which I think is now... 21 years old or something and mm. it's all been sort of replanted in a very naturalistic way it doesn't look like it's been planted basically but they also recently acquired the property over the watershed on the north side and i visited there they haven't really done very much planting there at all but already you can see that the sheep have gone and it's like what like i went there in spring and the spring wildflowers were just amazing really you've got massive clumps of like marsh marigold and mossy saxifrage and
0: oh, huge
1: sort of trailing masses of heath bed oh uh, it was just so nice and i mean it's just you know that's within two years i think of stock being removed that's mad. it's so quick how it bounces back and if you think about how much more productive that ecosystem is now it can now probably support even more sheep admittedly i'm not saying put more sheep on it now (laughs) i'm saying just keep keep it in balance so that the so that the ecosystem is productive you can still stick sheep on it just not so many that it becomes unproductive yeah so yeah i mean yeah there's a lot to be addressed in terms of balance but i think we are moving in the right direction i mean there's so many schemes now i mean that's just one borders forest trust you've got trees for life doing the thing in the highlands i mean with the announcement of their uh was it Africa Highlands that they announced yesterday, um, which is a huge landscape scale initiative? You've got Camogorms Connect, Mar Lodge Estate. You've got ah, there's just so much going on, and it, it is really encouraging to see. And you can visit these sites and see. Oh, right, nature does actually bounce back if we just give it a chance. So yeah, and then we'll move on to the habitats that we've completely eradicated. Um, again, this is sort of along the lines of woodland, basically. So this is one of my main areas of interest as you go up a hill mm-hmm. you'll have nice tall in i don't know let's take around sort of avimore area for example you'll have nice tall straight pines mm-hmm. and then eventually they get to a certain altitude where they're not growing so straight that's called the timber line because mm-hmm. obviously the, the foresters are going to go well that's too crooked so i'm not foresting that or logging that And then up that, you keep going. The trees will still keep growing. And then eventually the trees get a little bit gnarled and sort of twisted. Oh, what's that called? Oh, that's the tree line. (laughs) I forgot forgot my name there for a second. I was like, what could that possibly be called? Yeah, that'll be it. And beyond that, you'll still get, sort of crooked trees growing mm. um but the thing is we don't have in scotland a natural tree line because we've removed so much of our upland woodland through grazing and fire and logging and all sorts of things the most natural i put that in, invo- in inverted commas mm. a tree line in scotland is at craig fieclach which i think is at It's about 570 metres. Okay. And there are trees up there which are insane. There's one which is, it's about 400 years old, but it doesn't grow above the height of my knee. What? It's just, yeah, if you look at the trunk, it grows up for about five centimetres and then goes completely horizontal in one direction. (laughs) And then there's a, for about, I don't know, half, maybe, yeah, about half a metre. Then there's a complete U-bend and grows the complete opposite direction, completely flat, parallel to the ground, and then spreads out from there. That's
0: amazing.
1: It's one of the most amazing trees you'll ever see. Yeah. Um, And I don't think there's anywhere else in Scotland where you can see that sort of tree. But the thing is, that tree line was natural probably about 300, 400 years ago when we had... Uh, a time that was called the little ice age Mm. it wasn't an actual ice age but i mean it was cold enough that the thames froze over multiple years in a row there's paintings of people ice skating on the thames and walking across it and stuff so it was pretty cold and as a result the trees couldn't grow as high because it was so cold when it got so far up so these trees are basically relics of the little ice age so that's where the tree line would have been since then, there's been such heavy grazing and fires and everything that the tree line hasn't been able to naturally expand up the hill. That being said, uh, it is now expanding up the hill. But the thing is, up there, you, you go from pine straight into sort of juniper scrub and then you're onto open heath. We're missing a whole band on that hillside. So mm. if you imagine a hillside, you've got the timber trees, you've got the sort of crooked trees, and then you've got the really crooked trees that are kind of struggling. But then above that, we're supposed to have the birch belt which is basically a belt of birch trees at about 600, 650, 700 metres, mm. uh, sometimes maybe even up to 800 metres. Uh, this is of a specifically adapted mountain form called mountain birch, funnily enough, yeah. <laughs> which would have grown in this belt across our hillsides and on sort of high altitude plateaus and things. That is a habitat we have none of in Scotland. And that is also a habitat which would support things like blue throat, which we have as an incredibly rare breeding species in Scotland. Occasionally, it it just crops up, but it's breeding in sort of atypical habitat. It'll just grow in block scree or something because it can't find the trees. Ringuzoles love it. Red wings, which is another really rare breeding species in Scotland. Probably field fairs as well. Mm. Uh, Red grouse, despite us thinking that they're birds that like, yeah, they only like heathland or whatever. No, they're quite happy in trees because in, in the continent they're called the willow grouse and that gets onto the fact that above the birch belt you get the willow zone, which is where you oh, get mountain okay. willows. Like like downy willow is the main one, but you'll get eared willow. There's some rarer ones like woolly willow, which I think in Scotland only has about five or six sites now. Mountain willow, portal leaf willow, there's various willows which are specific to that zone. That's another habitat that we've basically got none of in Scotland. I think there's only one place where you can truly kind of experience that habitat, and that's affectionately known as the Lapinum Ledge. Lapinum is the scientific name for a downy willow, which is again, we're kind of doing full circle. We're going all the way back to Ben Lors. Yeah. So they've done some restoration work there, and it's just such an amazing habitat. You've got tall herb communities like species such as melancholy thistle, globe flower, wild angelica, meadow sweet, Yeah, there's all sorts of things, alpine sawwort, which are all species that across Scotland are basically restricted to ledges, but they'd be so happy in these montane scrub communities. So yeah, we're basically missing that birch belt and the willow zone, Mm. and then that peters out eventually into the proper uh, sort of alpine heaths and things, which obviously we're very, very sort of familiar with in Scotland, because those have almost been sort of brought down the hill. So yeah. I have recently started a project along with a couple others called the Mountain Birch Project, and we're basically looking for the relics of the mountain birch woods. So we're looking for people just to keep an eye out for, take pictures of, and send us the location of any birches that they find over 650 metres, because it's likely that that these birches are specifically adapted for growing at these higher altitudes. Yeah. Like there's been various schemes where they've tried planting low ground downy birch at altitude and invariably they fail because these are low ground forms that aren't adapted for that higher altitude. Mm. So if we can find enough remnant mountain birch, mountain birch being a subspecies of downy birch we don't really bother with the taxonomy if it's growing at 650
0: (laughs) that's not the main thing
1: (laughs) yeah that's all we need it's of interest because it will be pretty well adapted so if we can get enough of them and get the seed source and start growing on some of these trees then we can start restoring this habitat which i know actually i've kind of answered one of your questions that you were going to ask me is it possible to bring them back well
0: that's do you know what i was going to bring that up because what you've kind of done there is answered those two eight next questions because i was going to ask you is it possible mm-hmm. to bring them back and what are the benefits but then you've kind of mm-hmm. said it there as a full circle this is what we're missing and and the reasons why you know from overgrazing and activity on the land i guess and then it is possible to bring them back because people are doing it and now you are running yeah. a project that are doing it and the benefits mm-hmm. are i mean the species you list and things like that oh, and also just, so just having species. in like you said it's an ecosystem and not only will we see plants and insects and birds come back, but it all works together and it is stronger. And it also just, it just, oh, I've said it before, it just makes sense, but you've kind of just done it yeah. there. Like you've just listed all mm-hmm. of it. It's, it's amazing to... Oh, you got me going. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. And I think it. I think when you when you think of it like that and you say like, for me, it's just so positive to hear that it is possible to restore these habitats and it is happening. Mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing. I think mm-hmm. we a lot on the on into the foliage or uh, into the wild we um we kind of talk about the problems but we try as well to talk about the solutions and and what is actually happening Mm -hmm. because i think sometimes we are so focused on what the government are not doing and what the government should Mm -hmm. be doing that we miss the fact that there are ngos or there are smaller Mm -hmm. bodies out there that are doing this work which i think is kind of really important to highlight and i'm glad you did highlight that that is a a thing (laughs) Yeah. And even
1: going back to benefits, not even for nature, it's for people as well. Yeah. So one of the guys I'm working with is uh, Duncan Haley, who's a researcher in Norway, but he's, he's from Scotland. Mm. So he's sort of... Norway is basically a really good case study for things that we're missing in Scotland because they've just had different land management in the past. I won't go into detail, which results in the fact that they've got habitats that we no longer have, such as the Birch Belt and the Willow Zone and various other things. So he said that actually, well, he told me that in Norway, when you're hill walking, if the snow or whatever, if it gets really cold up on the tops you just drop into the birch belt because there's so much cover in there and it's so much it's just safer to be in the birch belt because i mean it's less exposed it's more covered so it's not only benefits for nature it's benefits for people as well Um, yeah and obviously i mean you think about how much ground we have in scotland that's between 550 and i don't know 700 meters you would all of that how much carbon uptake is that taking you know there's so much to be gained there i personally focus on the biodiversity crisis thing because i feel that a lot of focus is put on the uh, climate crisis Mm -hmm. so i'm quite happy about obviously but i I do want people to bear in mind that you know we are in a biodiversity crisis as well and part of that is making sure that nature can adapt to these yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. changes which are inevitable I'm afraid you know we know that we can you know slow them a bit and make sure that the changes don't continue changing well into the future but yeah so part of that also is the fact that if we allow these uh, montane birch woods to regenerate they will probably move up the hill from where they they would have been in the past because the climate is going to be more conducive to them being further up the hill and as a result the pine woods will probably shift up the hill and then we'll get oak woods filling in the gaps but yeah. that can only if we facilitate that by probably reducing deer numbers you know I mean there's other things we can do as well but the thing is we don't need to go out and plant and put up fences and spend so much money on all these things literally just reduce the deer numbers a bit I say a bit in some places it is quite a lot unfortunately <laughs> yeah. that's a difficult conversation so I won't go into oh we've it. had it um <laughs> yeah I, I've listened to that one yeah so yeah we just need to allow nature to adapt yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It, it is possible to bring it back and it's so heartening seeing it when it does actually happen. Yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, we're, we're in the relatively early stages of a lot of these projects and yet you're still seeing tree regeneration. I'm seeing the results happen. In, yeah you have seen the results
0: already so. and, and i think paul um, wood said it on into the foliage when we had him on talking about trees and mm. he said a lot of the time so i asked him about tree planting and he said sure he said but any gardener will tell you that trees will do it themselves because you'll see yeah. the saplings come off he said so a lot of the times it's just making sure the trees are there and left to do it and yeah. they will do it themselves yeah. that's what plants do um mm-hmm. so yeah i think if like you said the habitat's right then just kind of step back for a bit take some pressures off and like you mm-hmm. said with the peat I mean that's amazing to hear that peat bogs are coming back because that's the worry isn't it is that once they're gone they're gone so to yeah, know that yeah. they can restore after a couple of years oh or, yeah I mean I have
1: have seen some where it's like okay there's no chance here just leave it <laughs> just leave yeah, it to yeah. wash into the river because they have undergone centuries of decline and you're literally left with a peat hag which is basically a big it's almost like a a ta- like a how would you put it it's like a sort of table where you've got vegetation on the top and then steep sides of peat, which can be like a metre and a half tall, and then you've got bedrock all around it. And if you think about it, that that whole area that's now bedrock was once 1.5 metres of peat, and you've just lost all of it. Jesus. uh, Which is a shame, but, you know, that's that's the way it, it goes. So now we need to make sure that we're making sure that doesn't happen to all our still existing... Relatively healthy peatlands. Mm. Fortunately, the Scottish Government have put £250 million towards peatland restoration. That's so. nice to
0: hear. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's
1: great for me because some of that's going in my pocket. So I'm quite happy. Yeah, work for me.
0: That's good. It's nice to hear. What a nice note to almost end on. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, absolutely.
0: My last question then, and I'm really intrigued of what you're going to pass on here. But if you could pass on hmm. one bit of advice on to everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? Oh, so, <laughs> so I had I.
1: I have been thinking about this over the past two days whilst i've been trudging about south of glasgow on this peat bog getting rained on heavily <laughs> yeah. and uh whilst i was out there i not many people know about this, this about me but i listen to lots of different music but one of the genres of music that i particularly enjoy is actually black metal and i'm <laughs> going to take a leaf i'm going to take a leaf out of black metal's book and tell people that nature doesn't need you you need nature like nature i mean sure if we cause a mass extinction that kills all our cells and and takes a bunch of species with us nature's going to keep going the world's going to keep going it will adapt i mean if you go back way back to the start of like life on earth the first bacteria that were able to take co2 in and then put out oxygen killed two-thirds of life on earth like yeah. within a very short amount of time so we're not that bad um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> But I mean, the flip side of that is that nature will recover if we give it the chance to. I was who was I was chatting to? Oh, I'll just drop this in casually. I was chatting to Chris Packham on. Uh, oh, on oh him. I'll
0: pick that up. Sorry, I'll just pick up that name yeah.
1: that you just dropped there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, uh, I was chatting to him on uh, Hen Harrier Day, and he asked me how I feel when, or how it how it makes me feel when I'm out in nature and I see all this sort of destruction and all the things we're doing to the planet. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, sure, doesn't make me feel good. But I get to that rare plant or I get to that little gully of woodland that's still there. And that's the point. It's still there. It's absolutely still there. It's still clinging on despite everything we've done to it. And it will rebound if we give it the chance. You know, in those gorges, you'll still have all the oceanic liverworts, which are really specific to the west coast of Scotland. You'll still have the bird communities. You might even have a wood warbler in there. You'll have all the tree species that are still represented. Give it a chance, and nature will bounce back. So I'd say if people don't like black metal, listen to that second one. If people, I'd say there's a lot of value in listening to the the fact that nature doesn't need us, which is basically a kicking kicking the arse saying, "Come on, you need to you need to help it because otherwise it's not going to help us." But yeah, I'd say the second point is uh, there is plenty of hope, and uh, yeah, just give it a, give it a break, give, it a break. <laughs> give nature a break, <laughs> give nature a break, and let it do its thing for a bit
0: no i like it well gus thank you so much for being on into the foliage it's been amazing to chat about all the all the work you're doing man it's it's amazing oh. to hear that there are people yeah, out there get doing a boat. yeah it's, it's lovely mm. to hear so thank you so much for being yeah. on um this episode and well, thanks for having me no worries absolute pleasure and enjoy the rest of your weekend oh, i will do thanks again for listening if you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work gus is working on then his social media tags are in the write-up of this episode and you can also get in touch with me at IntotheWorldpod at gmail.com or on social media at intothewildpod Pod on Twitter and wild Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode, or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks and you can do so by buying me a coffee, our coffee link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.